Crunch Munch. <laughs> or Crunch Much. Like a crunchy thing, like a, a sandwich with a bunch of chips in it, maybe. Okay. Like you crunch much, bro? <laughs> you could make a sandwich with 100 Frito-Lay chips in it. Sounds sick. <laughs> I mean, the good sick. Yeah. The Crunch Much featuring 100 Lays. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, grill cook at America's favorite semi-officially licensed food truck, Quincy Jones, The Food. <laughs> We're serving up everyday favorites like the I Know Burrito and the 100 Bays, which is just a, a bucket of Old Bay fries. Oh. Come on down. Yum. That's well thought out, Sean. Thank you. I wrote that about 10 minutes ago. It's also a really bad business plan. I don't... Shh. I don't it's going to be great. Will. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm just deeply flattered that you guys wanted to do an album about me. About you? <laughs> the dude. The dude. Yeah. As he's known, and no one else. <laughs> yeah, I'm the only one. Yep, it's about time. You've been in those dollar bins for too long. Your buddies are going to give you that. I'd buy I'd buy that bump. You can be a rich musician, rich and famous. The dude agrees. That's my new right. catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make some t-shirts. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I'm sorry to tell you, Jeremy, but I'm the dude, so that's what you call me. That or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Ah. You just made that up, didn't you? <laughs> That's just straight off the dome. It is. It's not a I've, quote. I've certainly never heard it anywhere else before. So, <laughs> Peter and I dipped into the same well unknowingly. The dude abides and agrees. And agrees. <laughs> well, I think uh, we've hammered home the point that we're talking about Quincy Jones, the dude. On this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. This was an episode. Hell yeah. This was an album that we talked about doing very early on in the podcast within the first few episodes. And Sean had suggested it and was going to cover it and then realized that he didn't actually own a copy. He had always played copies in the record store where he worked. Is that right, Sean? That is what happened. It was on the schedule. We were like ready to do that episode. And I was like, hold up. I don't own this album. <laughs> yeah. It's now too late for me to order a copy and we got to pivot. I don't, I don't remember what I switched to, but yeah. And then the dude just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Also, Jeremy Ruggles was just mercilessly hating on that album when I was gearing up to do it. And I think he might've scared me off of it a little bit, but I'm we glad were, that I convinced you to take on the potential Jeremy Ruggles hate on this episode. <laughs> I'm right here in the room with him, so I will get the full brunt of it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't let him give you any shit, you know? Just, you like what you like. Guys, I've toned down since my early days. I'm just happy to be uh, here. Okay. The dude abides. The dude agrees, as they say. <laughs> the dude agrees, yeah. All right, well, this album was released on March 26th, 1981, and it was a huge commercial success. It reached number nine on the U.S. Billboard 200 and number one on both the jazz and R&B album charts. And it took you guys two years to find a copy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Just searching it's this whole... It's that good. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I've seen copies. I've I've walked into stores and I've seen it in the dollar bin at the back. But every time I go to get it, someone snaps it up before me. As I did this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to start by playing one of the hits from this record. I Know Karita, Side A, Track 1. is just such an infectiously happy song like i know that it's inherently a little bit cheesy but i just i've always loved that one it just makes me feel good every time i play it got a good funky groove to it i'll give it that i just mm -hmm. have a high aversion to cheese it's true and that's uh... there's some cheese on this record i will not deny it <laughs> yeah it's it just feels kind of silly to me but I could, I could see turning my brain off and just dance into it. That's what you got to do. You just got to feel it. Yeah, this is high quality cheese. This is like boar's head cheese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that's one that I knew before I heard this record. I popped it on and was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's a song I've heard out in the world. I don't know that it really gets played as much as some of the other hits on this record nowadays out in the world, but it definitely in its day was a hit. And it was actually written. This was a surprise to me. It was written by an English musician named Chaz Jankel from the band Ian Dury and the Blockheads. They're a post-punk group. Right. <laughs> Weird. And Weird connection. Yeah. And Chaz had left the Blockheads in 1980, and this song was on his first solo album. It was a minor hit in Europe and caught the ear of Quincy Jones. He remade it, and it became the lead single from The Dude. The lead vocals are from a fellow named Charles May. He goes by the name Dune, D-U-N-E, on this record. But yeah, Charles May, he's the son of Brother Joe May, who's an influential gospel artist. I really couldn't find much information on Charles May beyond that. There wasn't... Yeah, I, I saw he like worked on a couple other Quincy records and a few gospel things, but for the most part, seemed to have kept a pretty low profile in his like music industry experience yeah which is was a surprise to me since almost everyone else on this record did not keep a low profile <laughs> yeah like everyone else has just like major pros with huge lists of projects they've worked on and then there's this guy <laughs> yeah who still kills it though i kind of love it when you find those musicians who don't have this huge list and still just bring it just as hard as everybody else on the album yeah yeah, it's always a nice surprise. One of the backing vocalists on that track is Patty Austin, who we will be talking about more shortly. And who we've talked about on multiple episodes recently. Yeah, yeah, she's come up a lot recently. That song was a hit, as I said. It reached number 28 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number 10 on the R&B charts. It also peaked at number 14 in the U.K., so yeah, it had some traction. And I, yeah, it is, it's, it's a fun song. It's just, <laughs> the, I, the funny thing with it is I couldn't get a, a really accurate idea of what I know Carita itself is supposed to mean in the song. Uh, Don't run away could be one interpretation, <laughs> but when I was typing in Carita, uh, it also in some senses is slang for orgasm. <laughs> so, I don't think that was the intention in this song. <laughs> but it could have been, though. Let's be honest. Uh, yeah. another Bullfight was also another word that came up in connection to it. So. Ooh, maybe it was a triple so, entendre. Yeah. Or or it's just a song about an orgasmic bullfight. Like, that could have been what Quincy was on about in 1981. Yeah. Or uh, Chaz from... Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> he, he wrote it. <laughs> well, maybe his intention was different, but Quincy was picking up on something different, and that's why he decided to cover it. Yeah. Yeah. What a great choice. You know, it really shows it's perfect for the album, and, and it kind of shows that he kept his ear out there, you know, as, as a good producer would do. Mm hmm. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's funny because I, you know, you, we all, Quincy Jones, pretty universal name. But I don't know that I wasn't even really hip to this album until Sean spoke about it a couple of years ago. I checked it out and was like, oh, I know several of these songs. And I go into it thinking, oh, so this is Quincy Jones solo music. Well, yes and no. He's 
producing, overseeing everything. He's orchestrating this all. You know, he's not the lead vocalist on any songs. Right, right. Yeah, what does he actually do on this album? Because there's like 40 other superstars on yeah, this thing. Yeah, he... he doing everything. He, he, he lends his voice and in, an in instrument here and there maybe, but overall, yeah, he's kind of just orchestrating, directing. I mean, one of his biggest strengths has always been as an arranger. Yes. Uh, just a, a writer in general. Yeah. Kind of a throwback to the or, or the conductors of earlier eras. Yeah. In fact, Quincy traveled to France and studied with a famous classical composer. I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's the composer that like trained Stravinsky and Leonard Bernstein. So, like, Quincy uh, has a strong classical background and is very knowledgeable and has put in a ton of work and effort into his craft. Yeah. It seems that he's worked, studied, performed with just about everyone imaginable. I think we've all worked with him, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, at one time or another. (laughs) Oh, not me. Oh, well, he's he's running about nine hundred projects at any given time, so I'm sure you can fit onto one of them. You can go sign up for one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. His is a to to try to encapsulate the importance of Quincy Jones. You know, most people know him obviously from his work with Michael Jackson. That's how he became a I would say a household name producer. But yeah, unless you grew up with Quincy Jones and were taught the history of it, that's generally the first thing people think of in relation to Quincy Jones is, you know, thriller in the Michael Jackson years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about 25 years in, into his career <laughs> that that wild <laughs> happens. And I thought we'd just do, we'd start here with a little background bio on him. I mean, once again, it, we're not going to cover it all, but we could, uh, if you guys are ready, we could just start at the beginning. Hit me with it. So Quincy, Delight Jones Jr. That is his full name. Of course, uh, I found out he generally goes by Q. Okay. That's an interesting twist nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he owns it. He was born in the south side of Chicago on March 14th, 1933. If we're all familiar with the Jim Croce song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, the south side of Chicago. The south side of Chicago is the baddest part of town. And according to stories that Quincy has of his childhood, it's true. And he does have some stories from that time. Yeah. Yeah. He was around gang activity and it it seems was possibly on the verge of falling into that himself as a very young child what like six seven years old he has stories sean yeah he has stories of getting his hand pinned to a wall with a jackknife when he was seven years old and then like being stabbed with an ice pick the following year but he claims to have uh, retired from his gang activity at the age of 11 yeah he found music instead now would you guys describe quincy jones as a reliable narrator i would describe him as an entertaining narrator yeah, it can be hard sometimes to know, to separate truth from fiction with Quincy Jones, but I've learned just talking about some of these details with Sean in the green room before we started recording that 
don't think about it too much. Just go along with it. It's more fun that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just enjoy the ride. <laughs> so yeah, ar- around the, the age of 11, his family moved to Washington State. And he started off as a trumpet player. And as a teen, he began playing with a then unknown Ray Charles. Quincy earned a scholarship to Seattle University, where a young Clint Eastwood was also a music major. There's Clint Eastwood again. Yeah, wow. (laughs) He comes up too often on this show. (laughs) Yeah, it seems that Quincy Jones and Clint Eastwood were somehow involved in every major event of the second half of the 20th century. They're like Forrest Gump or something. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he was, uh, Quincy was only at Seattle university for a semester before he transferred to what is now the Berkeley college of music in Boston. He also ended up leaving his studies there to tour with the band leader, Lionel Hampton as a trumpeter and arranger. So he started doing this, the arranging that Sean said he is very good at, one of his major strengths. He started doing that very early on. And soon, Quincy became a prolific freelance arranger working with people like Cannonball Adderley, Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington, Gene Krupa, Count Basie, and Dinah Washington, to name just a few. I've heard of a few of those people. True. (laughs) We did a Dinah episode. Yeah, so like this just gives you an idea. Those are all major names. Early on, as a young man, he's working as an arranger for you know the top of the pile. Mm-hmm. He toured Europe, the Middle East, and South Africa. He was a trumpeter and musical director for Dizzy Gillespie. He settled in Paris, as Sean mentioned earlier, in 1957. He became the music director at Barclay which was the licensor for Mercury Records in France. Upon returning to the States in the early 1960s, he moved to New York City and he became an A&R director for Mercury Records. And shortly thereafter, he was named vice president of Mercury Records. He was one of the first African-Americans to hold such a position at a major record label. And he also, around this time, started composing music for films. Some of the early ones he worked on were The Pawn Broker in 1964, In the Heat of the Night in 1967, fantastic film, R.I.P. Sidney Poitier, and In Cold Blood, also that same year, 1967. And he kept doing that. Uh, he also, like, I found out he did the Sanford and Son theme. <laughs> Loved that show growing up. He also did the Cosby show theme (laughs) that people have different feelings about now. Oh, yeah. In the late 1960s, he moved to the A&M label, which is Herb Alpert's label we've talked about before. And he moved increasingly away from jazz toward pop. Of course, he was not new to pop. He had had success at Mercury Records producing Leslie Gore. In the mid-1960s, songs like It's My Party, Judy's Turn to Cry, She's a Fool and You Don't Own Me, all really big hits for Leslie Gore. I am a huge Leslie Gore fan. I was very upset the day that she passed away a number of years ago. It's one of my all-time favorite voices, and it was a good reminder. Oh, yeah, Quincy did that stuff. He's been everywhere. 
He founded Quest Productions in 1975, and he p- produced hugely successful albums by people like Frank Sinatra. And he also did the soundtrack for The Wiz in 1978. We've talked about that before, like on our Diana Ross episode. That was the musical adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. And uh, the film version had Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. So, of course, yeah, Quincy's name is synonymous with Michael Jackson. He produced the Off the Wall album for Michael Jackson in 1979, which in my mind was... It's not Michael's debut album, but it's sort of where he becomes Michael Jackson, the, the, the pop star. The pop star, yeah. The pop god. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, another vocalist that he worked with on The Wiz was Patty Austin, and she was on Quincy's Sounds and Stuff Like That album in 1978. She's actually the goddaughter of Quincy Jones and Dinah Washington. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She appeared on the song It's the Falling in Love on Off the Wall, which is an amazing song. And she sang lead on four songs on this album that we're talking about today, The Dude. And I'd like to feature one of those next. Betcha Wouldn't Hurt Me. Side A, track four. So the piano player in this song is a guy named Greg Fillingaines, who I don't know, but I looked, I clicked on the link, and his first album was called Significant Gains. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Gotta love anytime someone does wordplay with their given name. Yeah, I will never or not their, be amused by that. Or their surname, in his yeah. <laughs> in his case. Well, the. Uh, the chord changes on that seemed familiar. Like they might have 
been composed by another artist that we've talked about before. Another distinctive composer and arranger who's had significant influence on the world of modern American music, perhaps? I wonder who. Could it be Stevie Wonder? I think it might be. Yeah. Written by and arranged by, or at least the rhythms, and the synthesizer playing. Yeah. Yep. He played synthesizer on that as well. You'll see a lot of arranger credits in here. And I was, I came to understand that the reason that you'll see that on records like this is that a lot of the people involved with the sessions will have significant input, but they, at the same time, the songwriters don't, in that case, obviously Stevie wrote and arranged it, but you know, if it's a different songwriter, they don't necessarily want to like be handing out songwriting credits to different session players. So instead they'll give them an arranger credit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I know Quincy is very specific about the, the business end of things too. He has a lot of experience in that. I saw that he like recently sued the state of Michael Jackson because they had like rearranged some of Michael Jackson's songs for a Cirque du Soleil performance and had removed Quincy from some of the producer credits on it because they'd rearranged it. So he's suing him for like a cool $10 million or something. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. Right. That's kind of shitty. Well, before we talk about this record some more, It is February 2022, and we are currently in the midst of our Patreon builder, or our Patreon push, as we varyingly call it. And so we want to remind our listeners that if you sign up for our Patreon in the month of February, you will be eligible not only for the normal perks that you get from being a patron, but we will be sending out cool exclusive gifts as well and they are cool we're not just saying that like these are legitimately so cool yes the resident beatles hater in this podcast i still think they're cool yeah even though there's like a beatles theme going on (laughs) and i also want to say you know we're going to give you these cool things but it's also cool and important to us because we don't do ads and we don't you know we're not part of a fancy media conglomerate we're one of not many independent podcasts out there go on your podcast thing right now you're listening on click on the featured or whatever your home page is and look at all the podcasts they're all from big corporate media groups or podcast networks. And we're just trying to do it independent out here. And your donations, your patronage allows us to keep doing that. So thank you. Yeah. So for those who don't know, you can support the podcast for a monthly pledge of $1, $5, $10, or $20. The $1 tier gets you early access to new episodes. You'll get them a few days in advance of the rest of the world. So you can, you can, you're ahead of the game. You know what we're going to talk about before everyone else. The $5 tier gets you that plus bonus episodes. 
every month. We put out a new Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. We cover 45s. Sometimes we we, we bend the rules. We, we covered a, a 10-inch Rosicrucian <laughs> record in Season yeah, some, 2. You know, mostly 45s, but sometimes some occult 10-inches if we stumble upon any. You know, yeah. We like to keep it loose in our premium content section. We now are starting a $10 tier, which will get you the early access, the bonus episodes, plus a monthly mix made by one of yours truly. Little bonus mix. And there's also the $20 tier, as mentioned. So you get all of those things with the $20 tier. That's the vinyl subscription tier, where you'll also get mailed on a monthly basis a record and a 45 at least right sean with a handwritten note that's you do that mm-hmm. you take care of that end mm-hmm. it's a often two lps sometimes a record and a 45 always a handwritten note sometimes it's longer sometimes it's shorter depends on how much time i have in a given month <laughs> yeah yeah and that, that is a limited tier i believe we had 10 available slots for that there's currently i think four taken so there's there's we got room to fill there. Mm-hmm. I'll mail you some records. They'll be good ones, I promise. Yeah. Sean has a lot of records at his disposal. So for the gifts that we're going to be sending out, they were designed by artist Ellen Vandermeid, who also did our season two gifts. And as as Jeremy mentioned, we went with a Beatles Sergeant Pepper theme this year. You can check out how those look in advance on our social media Instagram at I'd buy that podcast or on our Facebook. Just if you're not already following us on there, just search I'd buy that for a dollar. You'll find us. You can check out those really intricate and fun designs there. You can see Ellen's work at voyage with Ellen on Instagram or on her website, voyage with Ellen.com. And the $1 tier will receive an I'd buy that for a dollar sticker that has the drum head with the name of the show on it instead of Sgt. Pepper. The $5 tier receives the sticker plus a tote bag with the full image of the Sgt. Pepper album cover tribute that Ellen designed that has uh, ourselves and Ringo's with us. Yeah, I'm George. (laughs) Yeah. And Sean is Paul and I'm John. Sir Paul. Sir Paul. Yes, that's a good distinction. Sir Sean. (laughs) And then a lot, a cast of characters of, that we've, of artists that we've uh, previously featured on the podcast. It's, it's incredible that, so the tote bag will have that image on it. The $10 re- tier receives the sticker, the tote bag, and a mug that has the drum head, the, the aforementioned drum head on one side and the three of us, the co-host illustrated on the other side and the $20 tier receives the sticker, the tote bag, the mug plus a personalized print of the Sergeant Pepper image that we were just talking about. So a lot of cool stuff. Worth it. Yeah, it will be worth it. We will. So yeah, if you, anyone signed up for the Patreon by the end of February, 2022, we'll be eligible to receive all that great stuff. We'll be shipping it out towards the end of April. So, well, you can uh, find the link if you're interested in the show notes or simply go to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Sign up today. Cool. Thank you in advance for your support of this 
endeavor that we're, I can't believe we're into year three of. Can't be stopped now. We're in too deep, too big to fail. Yeah. <laughs> Sky's the limit. <laughs> but let's get back to Quincy Jones, the dude. This album was nominated for a total of 12 Grammy Awards in 1982 and won three. Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. No. <laughs> How many were for the cover? That's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't have all 12 nominations written down here. Do, do you think it deserved? No, <laughs> I can tell you the number It's zero, zero were for the cover. Cause it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, honest. Honestly though, I feel like the cover is a large part of why this album can fit on this criteria. Cause like we said, like if you grew up with this record, you know how good it is. Then you already know. But the people who just know Quincy in relation to Michael Jackson are going to see this and be like, uh, mm, no, thanks. But yeah. So it just this sits. Album slaps. <laughs> it's so good. So, yeah. So it won three Grammy Awards. It also earned three Grammy nominations for one of its vocalists, a young man by the name of James Ingram. And he won for the hit song 100 Ways which we will be playing at the end. He was nominated for another song on here called Just Once that I would like to play right now if you guys are ready for another song. How many times should we play it? Just once. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good enough Cause here we are back where we were before Seems nothing ever changes We're back to being strangers Wondering if we ought to stay or head on out the door Just one feel about this song jeremy it's fine 
to make you feel something deep down inside. Probably one of the better ones on the record. I normally despise these kind of ballads on funk records, but I, I love this one. I mean, it's about as good as you can do a ballad on a dance record. Yeah. Well, uh, I think the Gap Band might have really perfected it, though, to be honest. I have a very strange association with that song. Okay. Is it Lay a it roller us. skating rink association? No, it's a movie. Bring it. Have either of you ever seen the 1982 sex comedy, The Last American Virgin? No. No. <laughs> it it starts basically what you would think it is, like an 80s teen sex comedy. And then suddenly in the last third of it, it takes this very serious turn. You know, there's uh, there's a few friends. One of the guys is like this smooth-talking ladies' man, and the other guy is this dweeb. And all throughout the movie, you know, they're trying to get laid, and he can't, the dweeb. And then his, and of course, he has one girl at the school that he's particularly infatuated with, and his slick-talking friend gets involved with her, then gets her pregnant and abandons her. So the dweeb comes in, helps her out and you know he thinks he's got the girl and then the final scene he goes to her birthday party and he walks in the kitchen to find her making out with his slick talking friend again the one (laughs) and he leaves looking you know just completely devastated drives away and the closing credits roll to this song Yeah. Was, now, Peter, be honest, was that actually just a trailer for your underappreciated movies podcast that you're about to drop? <laughs> yeah, what I that that all of that was, yeah. <laughs> trailer. And if you yeah. liked that story, <laughs> please like and subscribe. So that that's where I knew the song from. And it was I saw that movie in high school late at night on TV, and I'm just watching it like, oh, this is some dumb movie. And then I'm like, wow, this took a real serious turn. Oh my God, is that the end? <laughs> That's how they're going to leave us? <laughs> Leaving yeah. us with Quincy Jones and yeah. James Ingram? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... That's what I I think of, the first thing I think of when I hear the song. So I'm trying... You guys can appreciate it as just a song and not some traumatizing whoa, whoa, movie. Peter, it's not just a song. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way of life. Yeah, we're talking about a Grammy-nominated smash hit over here. That's right, Sean. I, I do need to give it its due respect. Yeah, just once will you give it its due respect? <laughs> well, you, you couldn't find the food pun for it, but we're we're getting mileage out of it now. <laughs> Make it up for lost time over here. <laughs> it was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia. I want to say her last name is pronounced Whale. I'm not sure. W e i l. Usually, we'll I'm pretty go good. Them. We'll go with that. They. We're a songwriting duo. They were known for songs like You've Lost That Loving Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. We Gotta Get Out of This Place by the Animals. They did uh, Somewhere Out There from an American Tale. That I guess okay. the, <laughs> the pop version of that was by Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram, the vocalist on this song. Oh. So that was interesting. I didn't realize that. Uh, so James Ingram, let's pause. or let's uh, Let's talk about him for just a moment. Mm-hmm. Because... This was his 
time to shine. He was pretty much an unknown when this album came out. As I understand it from watching an interview with him, yeah, he was from Akron, Ohio, and he had moved to Los Angeles as a young man. He had played with a group called Revelation Funk. He had, they had actually appeared in the Rudy Ray Moore film uh, Dolomite in 1975. I'm sure we've all seen Dolomite, right? Uh, I've actually not seen the original. I've seen the like movie about him that <laughs> Eddie Murphy made recently. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good, too. Yeah, yeah, I've got some of the records, but I still just haven't actually seen the movie. I, I lived in a, a house 20 years ago where that was a, a constant feature. <laughs> oh, Dolomite's on again. <laughs> Endlessly quotable. He later played Keys for Ray Charles before he received a publishing deal with ATV Music through which he sang the $50 demo for Just Once. He was basically just a vocalist for, for demo songs to get out to producers. Quincy Jones heard it, and he specifically called Ingram to sing the song in the studio. And Ingram did not consider himself a singer at this point. So he's like, wait, you, I sang the demo because I was tasked to, to do that, but I don't consider myself a vocalist. And he's like, my voice is so gruff. He goes into the studio with Quincy, and he's trying to you know smooth out his voice. And Quincy's like, you're here because of that gruffness. <laughs> don't lose it. Interesting. So that was also a hit. Reached number 17 on the Hot 100. Was used the following year in The Last American Virgin. I would like to take a moment to talk about some of the players on this album that we've talked about. Some of the vocalists. Of course, we mentioned that Stevie Wonder was on synth on the song that he wrote. But we haven't really talked about the other players. And as we've done on some other recent episodes, this is going to have to be a truncated version because this is quincy jones top producer in the business he's got all of the top names in spades it just goes on and on but on guitar we have steve lukather from does anyone know what band he's from it's a toto <laughs> you are correct i feel like there there must be a lot of members of toto because We've talked about a lot of different ones on different episodes, and it's always someone else. <laughs> it's always a different member of Toto. They they must have had like six or seven people at, at a time. On bass, we got the brother Johnson himself, Lewis Johnson, a.k.a. Thunder Thumbs. <laughs> of course, we talked about him on our Brothers Johnson episode, Out of Control, way back in season one. Like with many of these other players, he, of course, was on Michael Jackson's Thriller. He worked with Aretha Franklin in the 1980s. Billy Preston as well. That's just a few to throw out there. But on a few songs, we have Abraham Laboriel on bass, who we've talked about on the podcast before. And he's one of the most widely used session bassists of all time. He's right up there with like James Jamerson. On drums, we have John Robinson, Jr., one of the most recorded drummers in history. He was the drummer for Rufus early on in his career. He, of course, yeah, he's on Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Worked with Steve Winwood, George Strait, Donna Summer, Buffy St. Marie, Daft Punk, David Lee Roth, DeBarge, John Fogarty, Michael McDonald. Yeah, he is John Robinson. He's in many decades on many albums. 
percussion, the percussionist, Paulino da Costa, who is a Brazilian born player. He professionally plays over 200 instruments. He's been on several albums that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, quite a few. Very prolific. Yeah, I know the Jody Watley one was one of them, but it's it's been many. On electric piano, this is the one player I, I really, I wasn't sure who he is. His name is Herbie Hancock. That's funny. I see what you did there. <laughs> I, I will be honest. He's actually famous. <laughs> I'll be honest, though. Prior to doing this podcast, I didn't realize how much session work Herbie Hancock had done. I always thought of him as a leader. It is kind of surprising how often his name pops up on records for how big of a name that he is and was. Yeah, it's kind of news to me. It's, it's great. I, I love that he's out there that much. Of course, yeah, we also had Greg Fillingaines. He's on electric piano on some other tracks. He was the musical director for Michael Jackson and worked with Stevie Wonder on songs in the key of life. And he's the one who Sean mentioned earlier has a funny pun album title. What was it again, Sean? Significant gains. <laughs> That's what it was. Synthesizers. Of course, we mentioned that Stevie Wonder was on synth on one track, but Ian Underwood from the Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention does some playing and a lot of the synth programming on this record. We also have Johnny Mandel, who is an American jazz and film composer and arranger. He had been around for many years at this point. One of his uh, of his many well-known compositions is the MASH theme, Suicide is Painless. Ooh. Oh, interesting. He didn't write the lyrics, though. He's the, the musical portion of it. Some trumpeters, Jerry Hay who played on an album we talked about previously, Donna Summer's Bad Girls, as well as Chuck Finley, who's been on the podcast before we talked about him. He was, I know he was on the Carpenters Close to You. He did the flugelhorn solo on the title track. On sax, we have Ernie Watts, who's appeared on some previous albums we covered. Denise Williams, This Is Nisi, and Bobby Bryant's The Jazz Excursion Into Hair. And it just goes on and on from there. We'd be here all day. That would be the whole episode if we just talked about the players. Oh, but you'd be remiss not to mention <laughs> Craig Hundley. Oh, yeah? Yes. He played the beam microtonal tubulons. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was what other records has he featured on before? I, I forget. I don't know. I don't even know okay. what that is. I just saw that instrument and was like, that's insane. That, I don't know if it's real or not. See, I, I literally thought you were just making that up. So No, it's on there. I just it's real. Okay. I don't know if it's a real thing or one of those weird jokes, but I think it's not a joke. I know Rod Temperton is involved with this album, and he, of course, was involved with the Michael Jackson albums that Quincy worked on. So yeah, yeah, obviously a lot of crossover <laughs> with the, you know, most anyone here is probably on Thriller or Off the Wall. Well, before we wrap up here, I have a few interesting facts on Quincy Jones that I unearthed while doing research for this. I mean, of course, we could talk about everything he did after this. He was instrumental in starting Will Smith's career. I mean, you know, Will Smith was established as a rapper as the Fresh Prince, but I'd say it was really his role on television as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that established him 
as a mm-hmm. longstanding pop culture figure and actor. And it, Quincy Jones had a huge part in that. It's true. Quincy Jones, as we mentioned, was a guy who stayed on top of younger artists coming up and was also a guy who paid close attention to hip hop as it was coming around. He was one of the few people from his generation that was accepting and embracing of hip hop culture. And yeah, he he knew about Will Smith from his record and just like ran into him and was like, hey, do you want to be on TV? Yeah. Well, there's one hip hop artist that he wasn't too keen on. Do you know who that was? Could it be Tupac? Yes, we're going to do a little throwback here to season one where I always found the Tupac connection. So Tupac Shakur had been very vocal and critical of Quincy Jones in interviews for dating, marrying, and having children with white women. Of course, Rashida Jones, the famous actress, is one of Quincy Jones' daughters, there's also her older sister, Kidada, and Kidada ended up dating Tupac shortly before Tupac was murdered in 1996. She was dating him for about four months. And, you know, initially, this was a big problem in the family. <laughs> this man who had been very critical of the family, uh, vulgarly so, uh, suddenly one of the daughters is now dating him. I, I guess Quincy came around to Tupac though. And that's uh, good. Yeah. So, and, and interestingly, Quincy, uh, if you go to his Wikipedia page within the f- maybe second paragraph, there's a long section dedicated to his genealogy. Yeah. Very strange. <laughs> Apparently he has English, French, Italian, and Welsh ancestry on his father's side. And there's actually a number of noteworthy figures in history that he is connected to. Um, among his ancestors are Betty Washington Lewis, sister of President George Washington. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some some unexpected connections there. Yeah. Apparently, Alex Haley of Roots helped him do a lot of the research. And Quincy did the music for that, right? The theme song for the TV miniseries, I believe. Yeah. He has never learned, Quincy Jones has never learned to drive a car. He experienced a car crash at the age of 14, and that just turned him off to the idea of being behind the wheel of an automobile forever. He, he, he'll he state in interviews, like, I'm not afraid of anything. I have no fear except driving a car. That's the one thing he says he's afraid of. Whoa. Uh, do you have any other anecdotes or tidbits you'd like to contribute sean before we wrap up here i know you know a lot about quincy i had read that quincy supposedly played second trumpet on one of elvis's first television appearances when he like debuted his rock and roll songs that changed the nation and uh, quincy jones has stated that he refused to work with elvis even though he knew him at a younger point because he thought that elvis was a racist yeah i i saw that too I can now confirm that Craig Hundley also played the microtonal tubulons on the original Star Trek motion picture. <laughs> that that uh, I'd like to state that that very important nugget of information was done by our assistant and Jeremy's personal chef, Jacob Selner, who's dutifully sitting by fact-checking everything. As we record this episode. 
necessary so. function. Oh, I'll also say that Quincy Jones was actually really, really tight with Frank Sinatra from what I've read. They did a, a number of projects together, and Frank had a, a great respect and admiration for Quincy and apparently left Quincy his his famous ring upon his death. And Quincy wears that every day with pride. Wow. Well, I encourage listeners to look up more about Quincy Jones. You can go down many rabbit holes with this man's career. Yeah, this is one of those that we've just kind of scratched the surface on, and there's a whole iceberg under there of interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely belongs in like the same category of artists as like Duke Ellington or Stevie Wonder that we talked about. These people are just like their, their importance cannot be understated. Or overstated, whichever whichever one's <laughs> correct. <laughs> it might be both with Quincy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, I would like to remind our listeners to check out patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast, as well as our social media, Instagram at I'd buy that podcast, Facebook, I'd buy that for a dollar. Consider signing up for that Patreon in the month of February and receive all the cool gifts. We are going to be leaving at Sean Hartman's insistence on the song 100 Ways, another one yeah, of the Peter, big hits. Peter's playing this one under protest. <laughs> in my mind, having worked retail for 11 years earlier in my life, this was just a daily song, kind of the association of, I, I thought it was just in the air and it wouldn't be necessary to play, but I, I actually wasn't aware sean of the uh sample that you hit me to that it's it's used on yeah i knew the sample before i ever heard the original song i have a very different history (laughs) with this track which that's great that's great that you can we can come at this from multiple multiple angles it was used Mm -hmm. on mf dooms rhymes like dimes from his debut operation doomsday in 1999 yeah, it's a it's a long, very famous sample with some kind of goofy improv over it. And uh, yeah, having not been subjected to this through poor quality retail speakers on a daily basis, I can just fully enjoy it as a wonderful piece of music that makes me think of one of my favorite rappers. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from I Know Karita, the hits on this are tainted for me, <laughs> my associations <laughs> with them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> This was also sampled by the Dog Pound, the former Death Row duo, the Dog Pound, on their album 100 Ways, on their track 100 Ways in 2010. And this is another James Ingram spotlight. This is the one he won a Grammy for, for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. This reached number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. So it's another big song, and we're going to get out of here on it. Thank you so much for listening to I'd buy that for a dollar, even if just once. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Because 
If it's violin she loves, let them play. Dedicate her favorite song and hold her closer all night long. Love her today. Old lover in her memory. 